Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. We are in Washington, D.C. It is a dark but clear night. The temperatures are chilly. The snow has piled up around us as I look up and down scenic Wisconsin Avenue. A lot of traffic out tonight after a day of no school, no government. And I mean, like, no government when they cancel it for snow, not no government when they cancel it because, you know, they're having a schoolyard squabble. Uh, It's a little bit different. Traffic's a little bit lighter as the government is closed down, or portions of it are in Washington, D.C. of late. The markets have had a pretty good year, ladies and gentlemen. They really have. We're seeing uh, the S&P 500 for the first two weeks of January up just over 4%. Really not bad at all. Now, we have some ground for which we need to make up, coming from a rather weak December. But 4% for the first couple of weeks. I'll take 4% every two weeks for the rest of the year. If anybody (laughs) wants to make that deal with me, I'll certainly take that. Um, So stocks are doing pretty well. Bonds are holding in right around that uh, 2.7% level on the 10-year Treasury. Um, The yield curve is still holding. It's not getting closer to that inversion point. Um, The the two-year is 2.53. The 10-year is uh, 2.72. Gold uh, kind of hanging in there. Oil has had a pretty big rally uh, in the month of December, around $51, $52 a barrel. That's kind of a big deal. All of these things suggest, ladies and gentlemen, as I have been suggesting and many of our guests on the forecast have been suggesting, that the economy is not in trouble. The economy is moving to a slower rate of growth. But that's still growth, okay? Um, I don't see any kind of recession on the horizon. We saw a huge number of jobs uh, added in December uh, to payrolls. We have unemployment at below 4% in the U.S., uh, very little inflation, uh, 10-year Treasury rates at 2.7%, so money's affordable. There are some areas of concern, of course, and there are some economic headwinds, and we're going to be talking about those tonight. Have a great forecast for you tonight. My uh, great friend Mark Hamrick is here with us in the studio, which is so much fun to have Mark here. And then Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst, will be with us tonight. But remember first that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that discipline and dogged research and patience are the keys to successful investing. And above all, remind yourself of Farr's rule about emotion. Emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling fearful, if you're feeling ebullient, if you're feeling strongly one way or the other, stop. Take a walk around the block. Go talk to someone who will talk you out of whichever way you're feeling. Uh, If I'm feeling ebullient, I have a sister, actually, I talk to, and she can bring me down to earth very, very quickly, take the wind out of whatever sails I may have had. Uh, And I have some wonderful friends, like my friend Mark Hamrick, who's going to be with us this evening, who can get me through those more dour times. But I don't want to make a decision based on those feelings. I want to make a decision based on the numbers. And when we were talking, ladies and gentlemen, in early December and things weren't going well, I had a client who called me and said, Michael, this this market feels awful. I said, oh, boy, we should buy it then. 
Really, we should buy it? Yes, if it feels awful, we have to buy it. One of my rules dating back, see, this is one of the things I learned in the 70s. In the 70s, we were taught, if it feels good, do it. Uh, And they came out with these new things called smiley faces. It was a really nauseating period in general. Uh, (laughs) But if it feels good, do it was the mantra of the day. FAR's rules on investing include, if it feels bad, do it. My friend Don Hayes, who used to be with Wheat First Securities, he now runs Hayes... uh, uh, research out of Nashville, Tennessee, and Don has one of these accents, and he talks like this. It's horrible to listen to him. It just really is horrible. Horrible Tennessee twang. Don says, now listen, let me tell you, when you're investing, you ought to be in a full-on body sweat every time you decide you're going to buy or sell anything. Full-on body sweat. So if you're thinking about buying a stock, it should feel awful. If you're thinking about selling a stock, uh, it should feel awful. Think about selling the FANG stocks this time last year. Would have been the perfect thing to do. Would have felt awful, right? FANG stocks fell 30% in 2018. They've rebounded nicely, some of them. But basically, uh, if it feels bad, do it. All right. Uh, We're going to go now to my friend Mark Hamrick, who's going to join us right here in studio. Mark Hamrick, old friend. We had uh, two of our sons were in school together. He's the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. Out of the National Press Building, right there in the shadow of the White House and U.S. Treasury. He was president, by the way, of the National Press Club. I I can't remember when I first met you, Mark, Associated Press, right. 20 yeah. years ago? Uh, yeah, at least. I mean, it's yeah. been a long, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, I don't mean to, and we were both in our teens, exactly. of course, when we, uh, he was president of Cebu. Tell me what that Still means. am, yeah. It's yeah. The, uh, you are. It's essentially the leading uh, association for business and financial journalists, the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing. Right. Advanced business editing and writing. I got. He was very kind. He had me come and speak to uh, the Cebu conference uh, up uh, up in New York. We had a uh, with my friend Lizanne Saunders. We were on a panel together, and it was really a great deal of fun. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Well, no, it was great. And you know, like so many of these wonderful voices, doesn't my, you can already hear Hamrick's voice, can't you? He's got a wonderful voice. I don't. I, 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 my, 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 I have a voice that was made for the shower, if ever there was one. And I thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for enduring. But he began his career uh, in high school working in, in uh, radio. And, um, you know, he's a native of Kansas. And, you know, every time I hear that, you know, you've got to remember Tom Brokaw. Where was he from? Nebraska? Nebraska. Nebraska. Think, yeah, oh, yeah. All those Midwest people yeah. have the perfect accent. Or South Dakota, I'm sorry. Yeah, you had Carson, basically Nebraska. Uh, but, yeah, there's a Walter Cronkite, Kansas City, Walt Disney, Kansas City. So, yeah, there's a lot of great Midwesterners. Mark, we started out tonight. I started talking about what markets have done and where we are this year. We continue to be in this shutdown. We've got Brexit and headlines going on today. We continue to have news out of China that growth there is slowing substantially. What do you make of all of the markets now and from all of your experience over the years? How does all of this strike you? How do you feel as we're starting in 2019? Well, uh, you know, as we discussed before, we came on here, Michael, you know, we went through a period of remarkably low volatility a couple of years ago, and then we made up for that, for example, of from October through the end of December, and now we seem to be going back to something that's more normal with the market's performance here. You know, I just before we went on here, I, I, I wrote down a list of among the things that we're watching in the sense of reasons for caution. And you mentioned at the outset U.S.-China trade. Uh, just today, we had uh, another uh, rather uh, tumultuous day with respect to the uh, turning point, perhaps, for Brexit. Uh, Theresa May 
Chinese government appears to be on the precipice. We know that there's slowing global growth. We have had rising interest rates, and certainly on a year-over-year basis, interest rates in the U.S. are higher, uh, and the evaporating benefit of the federal tax cut. So we need not, as you said, uh, have a recession in the near term, but almost certainly growth in 2019 will be below the rate of 2018. And then the question is, what about 2020? And I think we'll have a better idea about that when we get closer. But, you know, uh, none of the those... CBO says that that's going to be also low. The CBO, this Congressional Budget Office, is still calling for something close for, to 2 percent for 2020. Right. Yeah. Which seems reasonable to me. Yeah, that's right. Where the Fed has the median outlook for a real GDP as well after a 2.3 reading in the current year down from basically 3.0 in 2018. So, you know, you're the expert on uh, investing in the markets. Uh, and obviously you can have, uh, you know, some positive uh, investing opportunities in, in that setting, but it's going to be a different setting, especially with all those variables that we just outlined. No question about it. No, no question about it. So, t- okay, as from, from your seat, you get to talk to so many people. Uh, tell me, tell me, you think, tell me, the Mark, uh, May government, does she survive? We're going to ask Mahaffey when he gets here. You think May gets through this well, or no? Well, it seems like there's a vote uh, of confidence uh, in the offing. And, Tomorrow. Yeah, and so it's hard to imagine having had uh, one of the worst thrashings in nearly 100 years uh, that she can survive. But, you know, you talk to people in England and say, what do you think is going to happen? And it's a little like the political environment here. Basically, they'll say, I have no idea. So I think if, if anything, you say the two watchwords for the U.S. and perhaps the world in 2019 are volatility and uncertainty. Volatility is my number one call for 2019. It seems like a very stupid call, a very easy call. But, you know, that's where I live, kind of stupid and easy. I'm going to go with that every time. So, But, yeah, I mean, much more volatility. One of the things we talked about in uh, my uh, client uh, forecast that we gave this morning, we had a big breakfast here in Washington, and I spoke for bored these people for about 45 minutes. Uh, in 2017, there were eight days, Mark, where there were over where there was a one percent move in the S and P 500. Eight days. There was something like 58 days in 2018. There are already five or six days of one percent moves here in the first two weeks. So here we are on the Ides of January. Uh, and when I say Ides, if that harkens back to the Ides of March, I appreciate all of our literary listeners. And I'm not sure that that's what I mean. I don't mean to tell you that you need to beware the Ides, but there is is a January effect we've talked about for years. January effect, Mark, uh, you want to tell us what it says? Or? Well, essentially, we're talking about if you set a good uh, uh, tone for the year in January, you have a good year, right? Well, that's what it says. And I'm not sure that it's ever proven to be true. But every January I've ever been in the business, people talk about the January effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, now, uh, you all just came out with a uh, really cool survey. Uh, th- that I saw uh, at the um, uh, at Bankrate. Yes. Uh, you came out with a cool survey where you looked to talk to a whole bunch of investors, and they didn't sound happy. They didn't sound optimistic or positive, no. did they? Well, let me just uh, set the scene for this a little bit. So one of the things that Bankrate has done since its inception is do surveys, and that began with rate surveys. So we're really uh, one of the major entities uh, in the United States that uh, encapsulates the entire rate universe, everywhere from certificates of deposit to mortgage, uh, auto loans. You are the go-to place for rate. 
rate information. We like to think, but so. also it's, opinions on rates too, which matters, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, and so, uh, you can say it's a marketplace, but it's also an information portal. And so we survey all the time about rates, but we also survey basically the American public about how they feel about any number of different important topics. So uh, in the middle of last month, we surveyed Americans to find how they felt about their personal financial outlook in 2019. And what do they think? Are they are yeah. they happy? Are they sad? Are they well? The majority say that they don't believe their finances will improve this year. Uh, really? Yeah. So 44 percent said they think that they will stay the same, and 12 percent said that uh, those finances will be worse. So uh, you know, the, we take a number of things away from that, but we also ask them, well, what are your financial goals for the coming year? Because we know that all too many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And we know we've been in this rising interest rate environment where there are some risks for borrowers. And so uh, we found that basically one in three have a goal for the year to pay down debt. That's pay down debt is one of their goals, financial yep, goal. Got absolutely. it. Absolutely. 13% said they want to budget better. Budget better. Okay. 12, All of these things yeah. make sense to me. Absolutely. Yes. Well, you know, and the good news is they're actually making these things a priority. Yes. You that's know? encouraging. Uh, 12% said they want to save more for retirement, so that's right up your alley. Yes, I like that. And uh, 10%. Save more and send that money to Far Miller and Washington <laughs> is what we like you to do. All extra cash to Far Miller and Washington. And uh, along those lines, also, uh, they want to save more for emergencies. So those are among the top priorities that people have for 2019. And uh, here's one for you, Michael. Tell me. What would you say to a client who fell into this category? 11% had no goal whatsoever. Really? 11% had no goal. Yeah, no financial goal. I would say, wouldn't you like to have more money tomorrow? I think is what I yeah. would say to that person. And now yeah. you, and when they say yes, then I'd say, well, now you have a goal. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. I solved that problem for 11% of uh, Americans out there. You know, we found, Mark, uh, as we've been looking uh, particularly with the government shutdown, that 70%, our economist Keith Davis at Farm Miller in Washington, 70% of workers uh, live paycheck to paycheck, yeah. say that they live paycheck to paycheck. There was a Fed survey a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the Fed districts said, uh, sent out a survey and said, if you had a $400 emergency, how would you pay for it? And about 48% came back and said that they would either have to sell something or borrow the money, but that they could not put their hands on $400 cash. Well, we do a comparable survey, and we'll have an update on that in the coming days, as a matter of fact, and it's done annually. But I can tell you that when we ask them how would they pay for a $1,000 emergency expense, yes. in recent years that's always come in basically uh, above 35%. And so we'll have an update soon. What do you mean above 35%? Words, I'm sorry. I didn't really pose. I didn't really enunciate that very if well. If you had a $1,000 yeah. emergency, yeah. 35% percent They would what? not be able to pay that from savings. 35% yeah. would not. Yeah, yeah. Would so, not. So, uh, and these are people who, yeah. now, you, are you surveying just bank rate subscribers? Or are these just random uh, those are Average, just regular Americans. Regular yeah, Americans. That's, that's a kind of the nature of the polling we do. So, you Can know, you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, if you went to bed tonight and didn't know where you could put your hands on $400? I mean, that changes the way you look at the, view, at the world economically. That changes the way you go into work tomorrow morning. You're desperate to keep that job. You're desperate not to have an accident. You're, you're desperate to do a lot of things. But one of the things you're not desperate to do is go out and spend. Hmm? You're not desperate to go out and buy a flat-screen TV or in 
increase your cable package or go on vacation or buy a new car. You're not thinking about any of those things. I hope, because if you are, you're just going to add on to debt and you're going to make it even harder for you to find that 400 bucks. Right. So, uh, you know, that's in the context of this, you know, long run improvement we had in the U.S. economy where, you know, we, we talked earlier about the survey that found that the majority don't think their finances will improve. Well, that's more of a sentiment thing, but it's obviously also uh, affirmed by their recent experience. And then the fact that, as you said, any number of different data points, whether it's from the Fed or elsewhere or our data, that too many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. We've got to go to break, but did you have any optimism in that survey of yours? I hate to leave our <laughs> listeners on such. I mean, you know, it yeah, sounds no, like we're absolutely. selling membership in the Hemlock Society <laughs> yes, over here. We yes. don't want to do that. Uh, it's not the Hamry Hemlock Society. No. Uh, but if, if people were positive, and again, that was uh, 44% positive for their finances this year, uh, 52% expect to make more money at work. And we talked about that top goal. Cool. About four out of 10 expect to have less debt. And uh, about one out of five expect to make more money from their investments or their savings. Okay. So there is some optimism out there. Ladies and gentlemen, remember that we have been saying we think that this GDP growth is going to be two to two and a half percent. That's what the government says, too. That's what Hamrick says. That's what Bankrate says. And that's what Farr says. Two to two and a half percent. So is that robust? Is that fabulous? Like the four percent we hit last year? No, but it isn't awful. Okay, this is a little bit of a kissing your sister economy. All right. That's what we've got in front. It's not awful. Uh, I don't know that it counts as getting some, but, you know, you're not alone in the dark anywhere. So uh, kiss your sister. Stay with us. We're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us uh, again in 2019 for another Farcast, a uh, great uh, market section uh, with Mark Hamrick uh, from Bankrate.com. Mark's hanging around with us. Uh, We're going to go and talk with Dan Mahaffey now, because on the Farcast, we talk about the markets and Wall Street. We talk about Washington and the world and how all of these things will affect your portfolios. We found out from Mark Hamrick that the Bankrate survey says that a lot of investors aren't feeling that great about 2019. Uh, I think what that probably means to me is they really didn't enjoy the last month of 2018 uh, and that uh, 2019 has them licking their wounds a little bit. I promise I'm going to tell you something. And Mark's still listening to me. You add another thousand points to the Dow. uh, They'll all feel a lot better. Survey them again in a month when it goes up a thousand points. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's that client who I called in and speaking with in mid-December when things were really uh, looking about as bad as they could look. And he said, Mark, Michael, I think that the markets just feel awful here. And, and as I said, well, then we need to invest because that's when you invest, when it feels awful. So pay attention to those feelings, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Uh, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress is with us again this week. 
Absolutely brilliant, Dan Mahaffey. Uh, as with it, you're brilliant. You're, Don't let you're us down. You're the letters from my mother again. I, I yeah. Every week. And, I know. But, you know, she's delightful, and she sends brownies, which I oh, okay. tell her I said thank you. So I have to say, if, as long as I say he's brilliant three times on the show, yes. uh, I get more brownies. It's fabulous. It's the cheapest set of brownies, and I love it. So it's wonderful. She's really good. Uh, uh, Dan, Dan uh, we told listeners last week, we've got so much to talk about this week, and somehow yes. week to week, we're never disappointed with content, are we? No. Uh, Life inside the Beltway now, uh, unenviable. Yes. Well, so we told folks last week we were going to talk about the Mueller investigation, but we also have Brexit to talk Correct. about. A couple of other things. We still have this government shutdown shut that is now the is, longest ever. Yes. They, uh, where would you like to start, Brother Mahaffey? I think in the shutdown, uh, there's really not much to talk about because everyone's still dug in. The uh, idea of an emergency declaration keeps being bandied about. There's Why didn't he do that. Well, there's a lot of the conservatives are actually heeding one of the warnings I gave conservatives when I talked to them is that there's going to be a Democratic president one day. And if you set the precedent for declaring an emergency over this, just when you don't get what you want, just when you don't get what you want, uh, what happens if there's a utility company that's taken over because of carbon emissions or something of that nature where a a very progressive president could use those powers? Do you think think that that would be stopped? I mean, do, do you? Do you think that the president's not doing that now would stop a a, a future action? I mean, for someone who really just wanted to do what they wanted to do anyway? Well, again, we won't know because it's unprecedented in that sense that we don't have a Supreme Court case to point to. Right. The, the closest could possibly be when Truman tried to take over the steel industry yes. uh, and got pushed back there. Um, but it's it still would be beyond the pale of what a president has normally done. So it's kind of opening that, uh, opening that uh, corner of the attic that you don't really want to go in there and see what's in there. <laughs> I, you know, I have a sense, though, that uh, and tell me if I'm if I'm right right about this. This is just a sense that President Obama expanded the use of executive orders uh, that uh, in a way that other presidents hadn't, that 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 started more then. Is that right or not? We saw that in when he was really open and forward about saying he was going to use the, the pen and the phone when Congress was was standing in the way. But even back in the in the Bush W. Bush administration, uh, we saw that post 9-11 executive power was expanding in various ways. And and Congress has actually kind of gladly, uh, through incompetence and inaction, just kind of let the executive take over more and more, be it trade, war powers, etc. Okay. So, uh, the, but the, the office of the president, Mark, you feel that, that the office of the presidency, uh, the, it's become more powerful in, yeah. in, in, in the past 20 years that you and I have watched it, right? Yeah. And of course, it's uh, these days by uh, most other people who are watching this, it's all through the prism of their uh, stance with respect Respect to tribal politics, right? So, in other words, it's a problem when the other guy's party is in office. It's great when your party's guy is in office. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm just thinking as we're talking about this. You know, is there a way? Dan, to repair this problem in the coming years if indeed one party takes control of both houses of Congress? Or how would they go about that? The only historical models we can really look to is when Congress, uh, once post-New Deal and then once post-Watergate, looked at uh, moments where they saw the presidency had gone too far and worked to reestablish their authorities. But it has to be a sense of institutional rather than partisan prerogative. And so much of Congress now operates like a parliamentary party where the president's the prime minister 
Uh, and that means that they don't really care much about the institution, more that they're not facing a challenge in their party primary. Mm-hmm. And you talked, Dan, you, you actually sent me a chart this week. It was absolutely fascinating about the polarization of government. Ta- t- tell our listeners a little bit about how polarized things have become and how you measure it. So there's Without a, getting too wonky, yeah, Dan, because you lost me when you, we were on the phone. You have to look at it. It's a, called the DW Nominate Score, and political scientists have used this to create a hypothetical center, which is zero. And then from there, you rate the voting records of members of Congress as they get further or closer to that center. And really, since the 70s, we've just seen it keep ratcheting upwards, generally with each wave election making the Congress more and more polarized. Uh, and you So think, this really started in the 70s. I mean, I kind of had a sense that it started somewhere, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, where the real polarization, maybe from the uh, George W. Bush gover- uh, presidency. But Well, the 70s, we started to see the conservative movement take hold. You had the end of Southern Democrats. So we began to lose more and more of the Democrats who were more conservative than the most liberal Republicans. So that center ground disappeared. Right. Then you have the wave in 94. Gingrich right. really polarizes it. Uh, then you have the the wave uh, in, Ose- in 06, 07. Okay, I got it. So have we so ever is, been this extreme? We're now at the most extreme we've seen in modern history. In modern history, the governments are as polarized as they've ever been. It, okay. Anything to add there before I switch to Mueller? Yes, Mark. Well, there was a poll that just came out maybe today or yesterday that said a majority of Americans do favor this idea of a a marginal tax rate of 70 percent. So I'm thinking about down the road uh, as these pendulums tend to swing. Uh, My worry is that the diminution of the great American middle class is only going to really power that pendulum from one side to the other, and therefore whatever happens next the middle class is going to be left behind. Is Mm -hmm. that a valid concern? I think that's a very valid concern. And I think for anyone, too, who is in business or the investor class, uh, that it's it's kind of a wake-up call to perhaps move on some of these things like supporting education, infrastructure, controlling health care costs, uh, because when the pendulum w- really swings, it's not, it's not going to be pretty uh, for those who have done well. Um, and even, too, when I shared with Michael the, the sense of, if you look at stock ownership and wealth, how many people feel just generally disconnected from markets yes. and investing in, the, in that environment as well. Yeah. And we were talking earlier that the uh, 70% of the American workforce lives paycheck to paycheck. So it, largely, they've been left behind. They haven't had assets like stocks and houses and other things that have gone up in the last 10 years, uh, as remarkably. And it's been a very small cadre of, of, of investors uh, and asset owners who have really seen huge benefits. Average uh, income for the average middle class American is pretty much where it was in 1998, adjusted for inflation. So it's it's not so much that they have been left behind, but they certainly haven't advanced much. I mean, they're just kind of stuck in the mud uh, Mm -hmm. economically. And that gets tiresome. At, at a point. You know, that, that really gets w- wearisome. Well, people start breaking things. I mean, in all seriousness. That's right. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't, not, at some point it stops being a quiet revolution, as, as we've seen in France recently. And the social unrest really does take over, and we begin to see uh, more violent responses. And they have economic roots. Often those violent social responses have strong economic roots. So we should be paying attention, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, that let the make cake thing did not work out well for Marie. Okay. Let the meat cake did not work out well for Marie Antoinette. Robert Mueller. Yes. Uh, 
he's still going on and on. Why can't he wrap this thing up? And what's he doing? Well, he's still going on and on. And, and the reporting that we've seen, and I think we discussed this briefly before the holidays, was the idea that perhaps this is going on much longer because this is uh, bridging the lines between counterintelligence and dealing with uh, what Russia did in the election and the ties to the the broader Trump family and Trump companies. And the uh, the reporting from the, the New York Times, which the president, uh, it was sort of interesting. He didn't firmly say no. He just considered it very insulting questions when he was asked about his ties to Russia. Uh, but that this reporting that the FBI didn't see the Comey firing so much as a obstruction of justice case, but more that it fit into a broader pattern of Russian influence and interfering in national security and counterintelligence. And there was an investigation. And yes, the investigation started. Now this uh, generally fits into everyone's uh, pre-prepared narratives on the right. It's a out-of-control FBI filled with uh, Obama deep staters. On the left, it's uh, proof positive that uh, borscht was being served in Trump Tower on a regular basis. And, okay, so, and typically in these situations, uh, uh, the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. What do you make of all of this, and what does this tell us about the ongoing Mueller trial? And when will the uh, investigation, when the hell will it be over? I think the investigation is going to wrap up in the coming months. We're starting to see the, the sort of reading the tea leaves. Rod Rosenstein says he's comfortable with resigning when the new attorney general, uh, Robert Barr, is confirmed. So that Will Barr get confirmed? I think Barr will get confirmed. It, it'll, it may Mark, be on what a, are you hearing? Will Barr gets I, I confirmed? I mean, I haven't talked to anybody on the Hill, but I, it, it appeared as if he didn't set the House, so to speak, on fire with his testimony. I mean, you know, there was... Uh, for better or for worse, well, right? Yeah, and I mean, uh, there, there was sufficient indignation, but not enough, I think, to block... And he was, frankly, I think, pretty candid with the senators in his testimony today. He was uh, saying that he, you know, would not fire Mueller without cause or that he would report uh, any if any if he vetoed any actions of Mueller's, he'd report that to Congress. Uh, So I think they were satisfied there. I I think looking forward, though, you see, um, you know, particularly as uh, Manafort and others. And I think it's also important to note that if this is a counterintelligence investigation, that means the FBI has had access to all the uh, intelligence gathered by the NSA. So that's intercepted intercepted phone calls, emails. Um, And it doesn't have to be from U.S. intelligence. It can be from other countries that are also monitoring, uh, which is. Uh, you know, oh for example, it was the Dutch who first alerted the DNC hack was taking place. Right. Um, so every right. country around the world that's trying to hoover up intelligence on Russia and shares that with the NSA is now uh, potentially giving that information to the Mueller investigation. Okay. Uh, well, does this wrap up anytime soon? I think we get a report in the coming months. Uh, the next big question will be whether that, rep- how much of that report is made public, what goes to the House Judiciary Committee, uh, and whether we have a showdown there on a on a combination of executive. Does the president have any issues. significant worries? I got to get to Brexit, and we got to go. I think he does have significant worries, and I think particularly the fact that uh, neither his son nor son-in-law have been called in yet uh, suggests that uh, they're still trying to. Uh, 
delve deeper into what they were up to during the campaign and following that. Fascinating. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. Always fascinating. Finally, let's get to Brexit before we leave. We're still joined by my great friend Mark Hamrick from uh, Bankrate.com. It was such a treat to have you both here uh, this evening. Uh, Brexit, uh, tell me what's going on. Uh, Historic loss for the prime minister today. The the deal that was sort of a, uh, I guess, a soft exit ramp out of the uh, EU was shot down because no, there's no majority in parliament that can agree on a path uh, out of this. Uh, the voters spoke, but they spoke uh, in an absolute when there's a lot of shades of gray here. Lots. Uh, there's a lot of conservatives who I still think uh, uh, can't quite acknowledge that Ireland's an independent country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the problem with that is the uh, particularly the, well, the, the Irish think there. they are. You know, the Irish, they, <laughs> they, 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 they were talking about it in the pub the other evening. Yes. And uh, there was a majority of the two who said that they were. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, there was also some a great deal of uncertainty on the subject. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the EU is not going to let uh, Britain push around Ireland into any customs union because the entire point of the EU is that the big countries stand up for the smaller ones. Right. OK. So what uh, so here here's what I want to know. One uh, may stay in or out because there's a challenge. Right there's now. there's going to be a confidence vote tomorrow. I think the only thing that scares uh, conservatives more than Brexit is comrade Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, running in an election. Sounds so. like you're saying May in. May will stay in. May will stay in. Okay, this is a big call from the forecast, ladies and gentlemen. Dan Mahaffey says Theresa May stays in as prime minister in England in spite of the no confidence vote. Finally, they've got to come up with a new Brexit plan with what, in what, six or eight days? How do they delay this? What do they do it? How do they manage it? And what are we going to be talking about next week with Brexit? I think they're going to, they're going to punt and we're going to see more and more of a push for a second referendum. Take it back to the people. Take it back to the people. And do you think that Brexit, will they'll still get the vote? Can that happen? Will they still do that? I mean, I would love to see this thing get turned around. I think it will get turned around. And I think the, the other fact is that there's going to be... You think it'll get turned around? There's going to be quite wow. a few younger voters who couldn't vote the first time around uh, who who realized the danger this, this poses really to their stupid. future. Yeah, this really votes against the uh, uh, economic interests of every Briton out there. Uh, I couldn't believe that they actually voted this way. But, ladies and gentlemen, if Dan Mahaffey is right, uh, that's a, that is a strong reason to buy stocks. That's going to be good for the global economy. That's going to be good for the U.S. It's going to be good for global demand and U.S. relations. And this is a really important thing if, if Dan Mahaffey's right. So stay tuned to the forecast. We're going to do that. Dan Mahaffey, thank you for being with us. Mark Hamrick, thank you for being with us. Terrific again on the forecast. We really appreciate it. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're not trying to tell you to buy or sell anything. We really appreciate you joining us. Listen to Harry uh, tonight when he gives you our full disclaimer. Please know, too, that every morning now we are coming up with the forecast three-minute briefing. If you, on your way to work, and want to get this in your inbox, we give you a three-minute update about what markets did yesterday, what futures are looking like today, where Wall Street's going to open and what the headlines of the day are. We get it done in three minutes. So you're up to date, up to the minute, ready for your day on the forecast with a very grateful heart for all of you for listening and sticking with us. Please share this with friends on social media, and I'll be back with you again next week in Washington, D.C. I'm Michael Farr. 
Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. As with every week, we'd like to remind you that the podcast has been provided for informational purposes only and does not provide investment advice. Prior to providing specific investment advice, we would need to obtain information such as investor-specific risk tolerances, objectives, and income thresholds. The securities discussed and described are not a recommendation to buy or sell, and listeners should not assume that investment in the securities identified was or will be profitable. Thank you again, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Remember, you can subscribe to the Farcast on Apple Podcasts or any major podcast platform. Until next week, I'm Harry Jennings, producer of the Farcast.